Okay, good evening, everyone. We sort of hurried over the prayer requests, come to think of it. So everybody's in good spirits, and, and there's a good reason for that. Can we maybe switch on? Because I, I know the sleepers. Uh, Bright, for example, he's already lying down there. Uh, so uh, when there's no load shedding, for a weekend, then all of a sudden everything is amazing and people kiss each other and, how are you? I'm great, how are you? No, you drive, no, you drive. So that's, that's the first thing. And, and then, mm, uh, I, I know they were at least, at least mildly attended the, the Bulls game and out of gratitude came here uh, afterwards. And, and then maybe two of you noticed that the Proteas beat India in, in the World Cup, which don't pretend like you care. And, and that is, it was a, it was a big victory. So, so those of you, I'm, I'm, I'm watching Lorraine has organized this thing that I can watch on my phone every now and then if I behave myself. And I, I watch this and I say, oh, we're in trouble. And she says, really, I, I, I couldn't care less. And then, um, and then I say, we won, we won. Again, couldn't care less. Anyways, so, friends, this, this Friday, Jan Chris, who's somewhere here, we, we went to play golf, and I've never played that badly in my life. It was embarrassing. I, at one stage, I mean, I, I was in serious danger of just missing the ball altogether. And after the third or fourth hole, I couldn't do anything else but to start talking about my heart attack that I recently had and that it might have shortened my left arm or there's some, some sort of medical reason why I am as bad as I am. Now, I'm just saying that because I, I realize there's a very real risk of exhausting this thing and I, I am sometimes annoyed with people who've gone through something traumatic but then they start every sentence with that. So please forgive me if I, if I use the heart attack as a, as a segue into this, into this talk. So, you know, I, I was listening to, to this the song and singing with the, the, the Oceans song and if I can be very honest with you, a month ago in Tembisa, when I'm realizing I'm, I'm having a severe heart attack and I'm convinced that I'm going to, to die within minutes, I didn't sing these words in my heart. It wasn't about trust and I will walk upon the waters. It was a feeling of intense anxiety. And I was, I've never been that scared in my life. And afterwards, I felt guilty. I felt guilty for not handling this, this trial better. You know, I've, as, a, as a professional Christian, I, I have to, I, I talk about death and I talk about trust and I talk about the life after. And what I experienced on the way to the hospital was, um, I, I was terrified, I was scared that my that my, my boys will grow up without a father. I was, I, was, I was deeply scared. And you guys, a lot of you know Philip Calcott, where we always have the effectively free camp. 
And he's got this w wonderful testimony where he's just had a stroke. And as they rush him to the hospital, he just had Psalm 23 in his, in his heart and in his head. And he just felt so calm. And I, I cannot necessarily relate to that. For me, it was, it was anxiety. And I was reflecting on this with one of my friends, Andre van Seyl, Nina's uncle. Some, some of you know him. He's spoken here before. And, and I'm saying, yes, Andre, I, I feel like such a fraud, man. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be better at this. And, and in that moment, there was nothing. The peace that transcends all understanding was definitely not guarding my heart, as Paul says. And, and then Andre said something that just hit me like a ton of bricks. He just said, so, Johan, if I understand you correctly, you wanted to handle your trial better than Jesus handled his. And... In that moment, I, I was so comforted by the story that we encounter in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is wrestling with, with, with God the Father. And, and that's the, the passage that I want to read for us this, this morning. So where are we now? Evening. Matthew, Matthew 26. We've got listeners from across the world where it's definitely morning right now. So... Matthew, Matthew 26 is where we encounter the story in Gethsemane. And I'm going to read from verse 36. Yeah. When Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, he said to his, to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, but your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. See the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. So I've had the privilege to take many groups to Israel before, and the almost, almost without exception, one of the places that stands out, that's the favorite of many of the, uh, of the pilgrims, is the Garden of Gethsemane. So unfortunately, many places in Israel is, is, is very commercialized. So if you go to Golgotha, don't expect... Uh, a hill. It is just a church, and all the Christians are fighting with each other as to where exactly the cross was, and 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 even the garden tomb or a garden tomb, you know, it's 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 it's, it's maybe not that that picture that we have in our in our head. But when you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, 
you go into the Kidron Valley and then just outside of the, the walls of the old city and you've got this olive grove and some of those olive trees are 900 years old so they are massive and it's, 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 it's really a, a wonderful experience and there's a church built on the site called the Church of All Nations and they were very clever in their design because it is, it is almost pitch dark inside and when you go in there it's a very, it's a very eerie but a very uh, it's, it's, it's very experiential and very existential as you go in there and you experience something of the darkness that Jesus encountered that makes that place famous. And <laughs> I remember, uh, I, as a matter of fact, Andri was on that tour and there was this, this man, I, I, apparently you get rich and then you get super rich and then you get, then you get this guy. And, uh, and I've heard him on the phone throughout the tour He's a very ruthless businessman, and he's just, you know, constantly shouting at people. I mean, not shouting, but like very, you know, there's a reason why he's got money, right? And and we get to Gethsemane, and somewhere in that experience and what we reflect on, this guy just cracks. He just breaks down. And I think that is the emotional power of of Gethsemane and what happens there. Now, now, Gethsemane, like I said, it's, it's in this valley, and the name literally means oil press, oil press. So what they would do is they would have this machine there. By machine, I mean pretty much two rocks, and the one rock would roll around, and then it will crush the olives so that you can get the olive oil that sort of goes into the funnel at the bottom so that you can extract olive, olive oil. And Jesus just comes from his, just, just, it's coming from the Last Supper, and as he's walking down this valley, he's on his way to the last temptation. And if this last temptation is in, in the garden, it's, it's, it's actually quite symbolic because the first one was in the wilderness, wasn't it? And this is rich with, with, with symbolism. Now, here's the intriguing thing. Jesus has been speaking about his death for 20 pages in my Bible. He is constantly saying the Son of Man must be handed over into, into the hands of sinner and he must suffer on the cross and he must rise and die. The Son of Man um, has come to give his life as a ransom for many, etc., etc. It is, it, it is the thing that he's been saying over and over again. And now, when that death, when that vocation, the thing that he is here on earth to do, when it is imminent, he breaks down. He has, by the looks of it, a panic attack. He is in absolute agony. That's the word that Luke uses. Jesus is in agony. And in, in the Lucan account, he sweats blood, which, which almost sounds far-fetched, but apparently there is a, a, a medical condition that happens at the utter extreme of stress where you can literally stra- uh, sweat blood. And that is the picture that we encounter of of Jesus. As a matter of fact, many, many skeptics who question the divinity of Jesus will look at this passage and say, why? Why, if, if, if he is divine, why is he struggling as much? Because here's another inconvenient truth, and that is many of Jesus' followers handled their martyr deaths better than his. So, for example, Polycarp, he was singing a hymn as he was thrown in this arena, and I'm I'm not sure if if, if he was killed by wild animals, but we've got lots of of examples of Christian martyrs who were singing hymns as they were thrown into these Roman coliseums and eaten alive. 
You've got the famous story of the three reformers in Oxford. I just remember Latimer and Ridley, but there was a third guy as well. No disrespect to him. And they were burned at the stake. And then Latimer said to Ridley words to the effect of, uh, keep heart, Master Ridley, and play the man, for tonight we will light a fire in England that I trust will never be put out. You know, that is very stoic and very strong. That sounds a lot like the ocean song to me. But when we look at Jesus, it is someone who is in complete agony. And I think if we want to understand why, it's got something to do with the cup. Because he constantly says, please let this cup pass me. If it is possible, let this cup pass me. And when we talk about the cross around Easter, we often talk about the physical pain of the cross. And make no mistake, it was excruciating. That's where we get that word. Excruciating means from the cross. But it gets a little bit gory sometimes, you know, when we talk about the details of, of what happened to him physically. But it seems like what is, what is really getting to Jesus is the, the spiritual aspect of this. There's something that we cannot see. And if we try and make sense of the cup, then we can delve in the Old Testament and we're not going to go into detail. That'll take a lifetime of sermons to, to truly understand that. But at some point, it seems like the cup is your lot in life. It is your vocation. It is your destiny. In other passages, it seems like the cup is God's definitive judgment on sin. So in other words, this is him setting the world right. It is Jesus allowing all the dark forces to come onto him. You've got this accumulation in the story where first he, it is just the Jewish authorities who are against him. And now you've got the Roman authorities who, who are against him. And now you've got his disciples who desert him. And sooner or later he will have his father deserting him. He is completely and utterly alone, and he draws all of these dark forces onto himself. That is definitely part of the cup. The Bible is full of references that Jesus is treated as sin in our place. He is our representative. And the image that comes to mind is that as humans, we suck, and we cannot do this for ourselves. So we, we send Jesus like David to go and confront Goliath. But that is only a picture, that is only an image of a much bigger Goliath that Jesus is about to slay. But for him to slay this Goliath of sin, he, he has to give his life. So he's our representative, he's our substitute, he draws all the darkness on himself. This is the judgment on sin. And, and friends, again, one can add to that Infinitely, I don't think we can quite understand the death that Jesus died. It's not like the death that Polycarp died. It's not like the death that, 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 that you and I will one day die. It is a completely different death. And that was presented to him, and it terrified him. But this moment in Gethsemane actually makes his, his sacrifice so much more special. You know Why? Because sometimes we suffer and we go through something, but we sort of accidentally ended there. And then we suffer through it, and people will say, oh, it's so wonderful what you are doing. And then we say, well, if I realize it's going to be like this, I'm not sure I would have done that. It's a little bit like having kids. So if you, 
you know, you will, you will say, ah, oh, man, you guys look, make it look so easy. And it's so, yeah, yeah, we, we did. Yeah, we were amazing. You're right. And then, but if I knew it was going to be quite, dis- then I, maybe I would have, you know, thought about adopting teenagers or, or something. And the, the, the point being that Jesus is looking at, at what is about to happen to him. And then he willingly and voluntarily walks into it. I, this will only make sense to about a half of the men, and the rest of you guys will think we're nuts. But as a, as a boy, I was quite excited about the whole idea of initiation. It's a rite of pass. And I was playing in the cricket team, and I was one of, jun- I was one of two juniors, and there were nine seniors. And that meant that all of them could give me a hiding with a cricket bat. And they told me, look, the initiation is about to start. And I'm like, yeah, bring it on. Rite of pass. I like this. It's a story to tell. You've got a battle scar or two, you know, that you can show the next day in classroom. I mean, I know it's weird, but that's what we did. And, uh, and, 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 and I go in there, and I remember the coach says, are you ready for this? I was like, yeah, man, let's do this. And halfway in, I'm like, how are they allowing this? This should be illegal. I, I think it is illegal, but um, this is this is this is horrible. And uh, I'm trying to back out, but there's no way out. You have to take nine shots. That's my right of pass. And and I, I walked away from that thinking that wasn't funny. I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm 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 part of anything. I mean, for four years I could, got to hit other kids, which is which is fun, but. The, the fact of the matter is that if I knew what I was getting into, I'm not sure I would have walked in there with a lot of confidence or walked in there at all. But Jesus is confronted with his passion. He sees it, and he goes through it. There's this, this wonderful line that comes in the very next story, which is Jesus is constantly asking, I am scared, may this cup pass, your will be done. And we're going to look at that in a little bit more detail in a second. But when he gets no answer, he takes that as an answer. No, there is no other way. This is what we are going to do. And then Peter immediately jumps up from his sleep. And because he's maybe a little bit sleepy, the first thing he does is he pulls out uh, a sword and he hits at, 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 at somebody random. And he's not even good at that because I didn't think he, he aimed for the ear. You know, he was obviously going for the head and he, he only got the ear. Uh, and, and Jesus, what is his response to him? He says, should I not drink this cup? Put your sword back. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. This is what I need to do. So his agony that he has in the garden is almost as beautiful as the serenity that he has a moment after that, isn't it? This agony of, ah, may this cup pass. And that serenity, this is the cup that I should drink. Moments away from each other. Now, he gives us a model for prayer that is often uncreatively called the Gethsemane prayer. And it, it follows three easy steps. The first one is this. Jesus pours himself out. I am scared. I am in agony. We often start our prayers so pious. Oh, Lord, you're amazing. And oh, you are in control. And... Thy will be done. You know, but, but we don't pour our hearts. It, it's not honest. I think Jesus is far more honest than we are. Read the Psalms. 
I mean, that is just super honest. It's just emotion that is poured out in front of God. That is what we are called to do. It starts off by pouring yourself out. Secondly, it goes over to request. If it is possible, let this uh, relational damage that might happen uh, uh, or that happened, may it pass. May this ordeal that I experienced, may it pass. Might, might this financial trouble pass. Might, might this depression pass. Whatever it is, we can request. And then the third one is submission. Not my will, but your will be done. It is the Gethsemane prayer, and it is a very, very wonderful prayer that I think we are, are called to to, to use, to imitate. There's often a line when somebody goes through suffering that people use when we say, you know, Jesus is with you in your suffering. He understands. And that's true enough. I'm, I'm not trying to dispute that. But perhaps it would be more accurate to say, when you suffer, you are with Jesus. Because when I say, Jesus is with me, I make my suffering the center point of the universe. But if you say that my suffering, no, 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 this is, this is the, the biggest suffering that's ever happened. I am with Jesus in this suffering. To put it in a different way, it is incredibly encouraging to reflect on Gethsemane and to reflect on our own Gethsemanes and our own troubles that we will face and say, because Jesus drank his cup, his big cup, I can drink my small cup. Because Jesus drank his cup, I can drink, I can drink my cup. My, my father-in-law is now also, he also just had a massive heart attack and he just had a triple bypass. And um, I think the lesson is stay away from Lorraine. Uh, but the, he's, 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 he's recovering and it, it, it's going a little bit better. But I... I found it interesting just how suffering makes us desperate and, and people act out of character. So the family, and I'm, please don't see this as, as ridiculing it, but a family that is sort of on the conservative Dutch reformed side, I find it interesting that they were just getting the olive oil and ready to anoint him. I pondered it, and as I meditated on it, I realized that it's actually quite appropriate because... If Gethsemane means oil press, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is pressed, he is squeezed, he is crushed for our, for, for our transgressions. He, see, he, he gets the first glimpse of, of, of what that might look like. And there's literal blood that drips from him. When we anoint someone who is suffering, we can say, you can drink this cup because Jesus drank his cup. You can anoint someone with oil, and it's almost within the same tradition, or, or it almost invokes the memory of Gethsemane. Now, friends, obviously, we need to pray for healing, and we need to believe in that, and we need to ask God and beg God for that. But as I was thinking through this passage and thinking through you know, what's, what's happening now with my extended family, I thought maybe... Yeah, anoint him with olive oil. Jesus suffered immensely. We can drink our small cups because he drank his big one. But friends, the more 
that I reflected on, on, on Gethsemane, the more I realized that I identify more with the sleeping disciples than with Jesus, the bewildered and frantic disciples. It's very nice you know, to read scripture and say, yeah, no, I really identify with Jesus and what he's going through. But if we're honest, we identify with these characters on the side who are messing it up over and over again, who are spiritually asleep. The Kidron Valley, where the Garden of Gethsemane is, is in fact in the valley. So if you go from the old city of Jerusalem, you drop down into this valley. And that is where we have this very dark story that we encounter in Gethsemane. But there's something that I find interesting. Jesus asks three of his disciples to come with him down into this valley to pray with him. So the disciples come with him, and then he asks the, the inner circle, the three, to just come with him. He's asking his close friends to just be with him as he is going through this intense suffering, and, and that's where they fall asleep. But what's interesting is a couple of chapters ago, he asked those same three disciples to not go down the valley with him, but to go up a mountain with him. And what happens on top of that mountain? I want to read the Markan account of that. So in Mark 9, from verse 2, we read the story of the transfiguration. So we've got three disciples again. They're not going down, they're going up. And this is what we encounter. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he was saying, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So these three disciples are up there. And they are kind of terrified, but it is amazing what they are experiencing around them. And Peter's first instinct this time is not to pull the sword. It is to, let's build houses. Let's stay here forever. This is amazing. I never want to go down. The valley sucks. It's the, the, the weather, everything is amazing up here. Let's, let's stay on this mountaintop. And then almost immediately, they go down the mountain. And it is very striking what happens as they move down the mountain. This is from verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, <coughs> excuse me, and he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
When Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them thought that he was dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why, would we, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So these disciples want to, want to stay on top of the mountain where everything is serene. They want to stay there. But the reality is they have to go down at some stage into the valley where you've got heart attacks, where you've got relationships that are broken, where you've got unemployment, where you've got depression, where you've got anxiety. It is inevitable. We cannot always stay on the mountain. We have to go down. And the picture that is painted in Mark is so vivid because on top it is so serene. It is white. It is beautiful. And at the bottom, the way in which this demonic manifestation is described is extra vivid. It's like three times we read about foam coming out of the mouth. I mean, this is, this is R18 stuff right here. And this boy is being thrown around, and the dad tells the story, then we see the story unfold. He is dead, and then he is alive. The spirit, the evil spirit is gone. And these two worlds are, are put opposite each, each other. And then the father begs Jesus with this wonderful prayer. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I identify with that guy. That is often where I find myself. I find myself saying, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. When I reflected on how I wanted to handle this trial that I find myself in, found myself in, I was disappointed and I felt guilty because I wanted more faith. I wanted a better quality of faith, maybe. I wanted to be stronger in that particular situation. But what is most important, friends, is not the quantity of your faith, but the object of your faith. So on this spiritual note, I'm not sure who of you have seen the movie The Other Guys with uh, Will Ferrell and The Rock and all of these guys in it. Please don't you know, make it your Sunday movie to watch you know, as, as homework for the sermon. But the movie starts with these two A-list actors, The Rock and Samuel L. Jackson, and they are these hotshot, sexy policemen. And they're chasing bad guys, and they're on top of a roof, and the music is playing, and these guys just, just did, I think, a foofy slide off the roof, and then uh, The Rock and Samuel L. Jackson look at each other, and they say, aim for the bushes. Aim for the bushes, and they have this almighty jump, and it's just so confident, and it's just so sexy, and the music plays, and it's da da dum da da dum da da dum, and they've got this jump. They're going to catch the bad guys, and then they splashed against the floor. They they did. The next scene is their memorial service, and I thought about that. Why? Because they had this confident jump, and it was full of. Uh, 
the, the, the confidence that they had in their ability was amazing, but the object at which they jumped sucked. Now let's imagine for a moment that there's this ledge or this, this, there's something uh, in front of us and there are these lions chasing us from the back and we have to make a jump for it. And there is a tree on the other side that is growing out horizontally. And we've got a very good chance of when we jump to that tree and we hold on, then we've got a chance of surviving these, 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 these predators that are attacking us. Now, does it matter whether when you make that jump, you make it look as cool as possible and you do a backflip and you try and grab only with one hand just to show like this is, this is something that I can do? Or you have a very tentative, useless jump, but you hold on and you jump towards the tree. You see, it doesn't matter. What matters is the object of your jump, not the jump itself. And that is why this father, I think, is teaching us something about faith in the sense that the object of his faith is Jesus. Even if it's not a lot, even if it is laced with unbelief, the object of his faith is Jesus. It is so amazing that <laughs> the disciples at the end of this story, they ask Jesus, uh, why couldn't we get rid of this demon. And then Jesus says, oh yeah, this kind of demon only works with prayer. What's going on there? In my imagination, these disciples who are now on a bit of a power trip are there at the bottom in the valley. Jesus is up there, but they're taking care of business down here. And they bring somebody who's, who's really uh, in, in trouble. And maybe these disciples, like, in the name of Yahweh, I command you, go, go. And then maybe the other one, okay, no, no, go aside, it's my turn. And he says, look at me, devil. I command you go, and nothing works. And eventually, you've got this terrified, scared father with just a little bit of faith, but he is asking Jesus for help. The object of his faith is what, what did the trick, not the quantity of the disciples' faith trying to cast out this demon. Does that make sense? It is the object that made the difference. If we go back into the Garden of Gethsemane where these disciples are sleeping, when Jesus finds them, he is so, he is so gentle in his response. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that made me realize that my tentative, useless faith doesn't surprise Jesus. It is not something that catches him off guard. And thank God that this story is not about the disciples being awake or being asleep. That's not what the story is about. It is not about what they did or didn't do. It is about Jesus. It is about the fact that he took the cup on our behalf. You see, Jesus is going through this temptation, this last temptation in the garden. Who else went through a temptation in the garden? Adam and Eve. And when Paul reflects on this, he talks about the first Adam. The first Adam failed. But the circumstances under which the first Adam was being tempted was ideal. Were ideal. I mean, he had a, 
uh, he had everything. It was an incredible lawn. It was uh, just trees, and it was, it was uh, paradise. And, and God said, one thing that you shouldn't do is obey me about this tree. Just obey me about this tree, and you will live. And what did Adam do? What did mankind do? We didn't listen. We disobeyed God. We didn't say, your will be done. Now Jesus, again in the garden, the second Adam, and God says, are you going to obey me about the tree, the cross, and you will be crushed? And this cup that is being hung in front of him, it's like, you see that tree? That is what you get. That's how you're going to die. There's the cross. You see this cup? That is the cup that you're going to drink. And by the way, those people who are sleeping there, those are the people you're doing it for. All of these things are being held in front of him. And what does Jesus say? Not your will be done, not my will be done, but your will. And he goes to the cross. Friends, if, if we are disappointed with our faith or the lack of it, ultimately, what is important is not the quantity or the quality of our faith. It is the object of our faith. Let's close our eyes. Friends, I want to invite you now to, to do the Gethsemane prayer for yourself. And that is, start off by pouring yourself out. Whatever emotion it is that is in your heart, maybe it's not necessarily bad right now. But whatever that emotion is, put it in front of Jesus. We needn't have these pious prayers all the time. If it is, if you have to say that you are scared, or if you have to say you are unhappy, or you are depressed, or you are angry, or that you are uh, lusting, or that you are greedy, then put all of those emotions before God right now. So in the first part of this prayer, we don't ask anything. We just state. We just give God what is in our heart. The second part of the prayer, we request. We ask God for his intervention. Whatever it is that he needs to intervene in, we ask him for, for whatever it is that we desperately want. end with submission, knowing that God is ultimately in charge, and it is not about our will, but about his will. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on this terrible and beautiful story of of you in Gethsemane, our hearts are changed in the process. We 
think, Lord, we, we are invigorated to drink our small cups because you drank your big one. We pray, Lord, that we can have an honest faith that, that will be able to pour itself out in front of you. Lord Jesus, we also acknowledge that like that father with the troubled kid, we, our belief is laced with unbelief. And we acknowledge that. We acknowledge that we are far often, more often than not, asleep spiritually. Thank you, Lord, that it is not ultimately about us. It is not ultimately about what we do or don't do, but it is about what you did for us. Thank you, Lord, that you took the cup and that we have been brought in because of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.